Hey everybody, this is Chris from Trinity. Welcome to our podcast. It's good to be with you today. If this recording is being posted, it means that our leadership team, looking at the forecast, decided to cancel church just to not put you all in uh, the treacherous position of driving on ice or snow. Now, we know that with weather forecasts, sometimes you get them right, sometimes you get them wrong. So by the time you actually hear these words, you'll know whether that decision was um, a really uh, on-target one or whether we were just doing the best we could and it turned out to be just another day of rain in Atlanta. But at any rate, uh, we wanted to give you access to some of the scripture and what we've been thinking about and praying about here at the church. So if you have Bibles, grab them. Uh, We're going to look at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Um, Before we read, I do want to say tomorrow is MLK Day and in Atlanta and in places all over the world. uh, It's a great opportunity for us to step back and think about um, the beautiful work of Dr. Martin Luther King, one of our favorite sons here in Atlanta. And I hope tomorrow uh, on on the Monday when you listen um, and maybe take some time off from work, um, that you'll just take some time to give thanks for the work of, of the Lord through our brother, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I, I know I will do that um, on MLK Day. If you have your Bibles, let's look at John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tested the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and then let's try to sit with these words, this text. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the Bible. And today, more specifically, God, I I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for this first miracle, this first sign. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this very familiar text, I ask you to help us. Help us to see how this miracle Um, And your work in it, Jesus, has something to say to us, to where we're living right now, what we're experiencing in this time in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you've been around Trinity, you know how much we love this passage. Uh, This is the first of what many scholars uh, claim to be seven signs in the first half of John's gospel. And if you think about a sign, it's more than a miracle. It's it's something that's pointing somewhere or orienting us. Um, Kind of like if you think of a a road sign, a road sign is essentially saying, you are here, and if you want to go there, this is the direction to head. Well, signs tell us something about God. Signs also tell us something about ourselves. And I believe that as we meditate on this miracle, this first sign, we're going to learn something about Jesus, and we're also going to see something about us, about our own human condition. 
So we're just going to walk right on through, see what happens, see what we can see. And my heart for you today is, uh, my prayer for you today is that you would be awake in your imagination, that you would do your best to enter into this story, that you would do your best to see, Jesus, what are you showing me about you? And, and Jesus, what are you showing me about me? If we do that, I think we'll, we'll walk away edified and encouraged. So here's the story. Everyone's invited to the wedding. So weddings in Palestine today even, um, for sure back in Jesus's day, were different from weddings that we typically have here in the West, where oftentimes here in Atlanta or wherever it is you you live, um, weddings have a very finite guest list. Uh, You know, you have to limit who comes because the chicken's expensive and you want to make sure you have enough money for plates for everyone. And so um, in Palestine and at this wedding, everyone in town, the popular and the unpopular are like everyone. Everyone from the neighboring villages would have been invited to the wedding. It was a party uh, for everybody. And weddings didn't just last a, an hour. They went on for days. It was just a big party. Um, I actually think weddings are a lot more fun probably in the Middle East than they are here where we're just dressed up in uncomfortable clothing uh, for an hour and a half and then we go home and unbutton or um, take off the uncomfortable clothes. Uh, people in Jesus' day would have been partying for days on end. Everyone's there. That explains why Mary's there, why Jesus and his friends are there. Everyone's there. And the financial responsibility for a wedding would rest with the groom. The groom's family and the groom would pay for the wedding. So this young couple, who's getting, they're getting married, they run out of wine. And running out of wine at a wedding today would be embarrassing. You send someone to the liquor store, you go take care of the problem. Running out of wine in this scenario would have been equal to a social disgrace. Um, it would have been disgrace for the young couple and for the uh, for the parents of the young couple. People would have received it as a bad omen, you know, like something's going to hang over this marriage. It's not is a bad sign, um, a, a bad indicator of, of future events. And there were also scenarios in the ancient world where uh, the groom and his family would have been open to a lawsuit from the bride and her family. So we're talking about like a mess um, to run out of wine. And that's what happens. The young couple doesn't know that they've run out of wine. And this brings me to the first of six things that I want to share with you in this passage. Number one, like this couple, we all occasionally run out. And I don't just mean out of wine or food. We just run out of provision. And maybe you're there right now. Maybe you feel like you're listening to my words and you just feel like you're out of gas. I've been through a season recently where I felt just flat out out of gas. Um, I ran out of gas on August 1st. I hit the wall in the worst way, and that led to an extended leave of absence. Maybe you went into whatever it is you're in this season in life thinking you had enough to get through, but it turns out you don't. We run out of all kinds of things at all kinds of spaces and stages throughout our lives. We run out of patience. We run out of courage. We run out of love. We run out of hope. We run out of energy. We run out of money. Well, this couple runs out, and I think there's a reminder when we think about what this miracle teaches us about the human condition, about your heart and your life, is that you, like this couple, are prone to running out. We are limited in our resources. And in this story, Mary takes notice of this couple running out, and she thinks to pull Jesus into the situation. And Jesus rebukes her. I think we become distracted by that in this miracle. His tone is not as disrespectful as it sounds. He is just being direct, short, and to the point. And she responds to Jesus by saying to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
And I don't know what Mary had in mind. I, I don't know what she was exactly precisely thinking Jesus was going to do because remember, he'd not yet performed a miracle. So she just knew if there's a problem, it would be good for me to involve him. And this gets me to the second thing that I think we need to note when we think about Jesus and we think about ourselves as we navigate our way through life. Do I, do you, like Mary, think to involve Jesus in the problems of life? I think that too often I find myself just trying to get through on my own resources. I I find myself uh, putting my head down and just trying to get through whatever storm or whatever obstacles there. And, And oftentimes we live like Jesus isn't present. Um, and we don't think to invite him into the struggle. Well, Mary thinks to invite Jesus. And when I read a text like this and stop and think about it, I'm challenged. I'm challenged to ask the question, um, do I think to include Jesus in the crisis, in the struggle, or do I act like I can solve the problem on my own? Or maybe on the other side, do I just sort of find myself falling into a fatalistic pit and thinking, well, all hope is lost and feeling sorry for myself, self-pity. Well, Mary says, do whatever he tells you. She thinks Jesus needs to be involved in the problem. And I just want to say to you, it would be wise and good for us to ask the question, do I think to include Jesus in my problems? Maybe you're facing something right now, something maybe that feels insurmountable, something that is a crisis triggering to you physically or emotionally, relationally. Do you think to ask Jesus to come into that place? Or... Do you fall down into self-pity or act like you can solve the problem on your own? Mary says, let's get Jesus involved. And I think in this season of my life, I'm trying to intentionally ask Jesus to be involved in the things that hurt, in the things that confuse me, in the things that embarrass me, places where I would be tempted to do things on my own or to fall down into a trap of self-pity. The third thing I think we need to see in this passage is that Jesus' action on behalf of this couple, the changing of the water into wine, was primarily born out of a desire to spare them from shame. And I'm going to put this more pointedly to you. Jesus desires to spare you from shame, especially in the places where you, quote unquote, run out where you lack the ability to see things through on your own. This miracle at its core, like all the miracles of Jesus, is an act of compassion. And if Jesus will work to spare a poor, young, unnamed couple from shame, then I can be confident that he cares for me, that he cares for you. Jesus knows what's lurking around the corner. And the thing that I love about this text is that the couple had no idea that crisis had come. They were unaware. They were unaware. They did not know that they'd run out. The servants knew. They didn't know. And when I live my own life, I'm aware that there are oftentimes I'm not clued in to the fact that I'm about to run out of resources, that I'm about to hit a wall. I had no idea on the 29th of August that I was going to hit a wall or the 29th of July that I was going to hit a wall just a couple of days later. But Jesus knew. And so if you're in one of those places, I just want to say Jesus knows your finitude. He knows your limitations. He knows when you don't have enough, even before you know. So the servants do what Jesus asked them to do. He tells the servants to fill water pots to the very brim. So it didn't probably make a lot of sense to the servants. They're thinking, we got a wine problem, and you're asking us to fill up um, ceremonial washing basins with water. And this leads me to the fourth thing that I think we all need to take from this text, and it's this. Jesus invites people like you to participate with him. 
Mary noticed and says, do what he tells you. Jesus could have, I guess, um, if he had chosen to, for sure he could have done this and performed this miracle all by himself, kind of ex nihilo, out of nothing. He could have just said, poof, there, there's the wine. But he chooses to work with ordinary people. People work with God as he is beginning to act on behalf of others. And I just want to say to you, there's something so beautiful about this. Jesus uses people to help people. Jesus uses people like you, like me, to move and work with him as he executes compassion for others. You have a job to do. You have a part to play. God doesn't want you to be a passive spectator. He doesn't want us just to remain passive as uh, he does all the work. He intentionally includes people like us. And I just want to say to you, he wants to use you. He wants to leverage you to do good things for him. And most of the time, the job he invites us to do is relatively simple and normal. For these servants, it was filling up some water jars. And many of us think, well, if God's going to use me, it's got to be heroic. It's got to be like bigger than life. And yet most of the time when God uses people like you and like me, it's just in ordinary routine ways where we get outside ourselves in obedience to God and then good things happen for other people. So where's the Lord maybe wanting you to get involved, to move through passivity into more of an active engagement with him? When was the last time you felt involved? When, when was the last time you felt used by God? I think these are really important questions for us to ask because he wants you to feel and to be useful. He wants to use you. So what happens? They fill up the water jars. Jesus turns the water into wine. And we see this unusual compassion come from Jesus in this first sign. He moves into action. He includes other people to spare a young couple who live in an obscure village. He, he spares them from shame. And this transformation of water into wine is striking. It, it's symbolic of, tra- of change. It's symbolic of God taking an ordinary thing and transforming it into something extraordinary. But here's the fifth thing I want to say to you about this text. Not everyone notices this miracle of Jesus. And similarly, not everyone notices when God's at work. Only a few people in this story are in on the secret. Um, Mary knows. The servants know. The disciples know. Nobody else knows. The couple doesn't know. The chief steward doesn't know. Um, The guests don't know. Most of them just bump along thinking, what a great party. (laughs) What an awesome wedding. Um, The steward is confused. He's like, normally people wait until the guests are all drunk and then they bring out the bad wine and you've waited kind of foolishly till now to bring out the good wine. So he's even cynical about the miracle because he has no idea that a miracle has occurred. And it just blows me away that Jesus' first miracle was done largely in secret. And it makes me wonder how many times has God done some act of provision on my behalf to spare me from shame, even using other people, um, and I wasn't even really aware of it. I just think in some ways the Lord in his provision uh, does things without having to sound a horn or blow a trumpet. So sometimes the miracles are secret. Sometimes God uses you and somebody else may not be really aware. Sometimes he will do something on your behalf and you may not really know. The bottom line, though, is that in this moment, everyone had plenty to drink. There was a celebration. Uh, What was running out now is not running out. And that leads me to the last thing I want to share before we pray and turn you back into your day. Jesus offers us 
abundant provision. In this instance, Jesus makes 180 gallons of wine, and that's after everyone had already had plenty to drink. So what that tells us is that he was able to to create a more-than-enough scenario. He can provide for us both in this world and in the world to come. Jesus wants you to not live with scarcity. He wants you to live with an awareness that he is the one who is more than enough. And the truth of the matter is many of us have been living with a sense of scarcity for the last couple of years, maybe longer for you, just a a sense of eking by, feeling like you may be running out at, at any moment. And one of the gifts, I think, in this miracle is that Jesus looks at this couple and he says, I want to give them more than they could ever use. And there's a gift there. In this miracle particularly, this couple, rather than drinking all the booze that day, they would have had what effectively amounted to a nest egg, a, a dowry of sorts, like a um, something of value that they could carry into their marriage. So they go from shame and humiliation to now abundance, to having more than they need to set them up for a future together. I believe one of the invitations for every one of us as we enter a new year is to reject scarcity and I would just ask you to, to consider this question. What is driving scarcity in you? How does scarcity, a, a fear of running out or not having enough, how does that manifest or where does that manifest in you? Is it, is it about money? Is it about relationships? Is it about time? Is it about needing or craving affirmation or belonging? Where do you prone to feel like you're running out right now? And how might we put that vulnerable space in front of Jesus and say, Lord, would you do more than I could imagine? That's my prayer for you today. Um, Honestly, it's my prayer for me. Lord, would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Um, Again, we're sad that we didn't get to worship together. Um, If it's snowy outside, go play in the snow. If not, um, maybe just enjoy the day. God bless you guys. Amen.